Awesome. Thank you, New City Kids. Love, love, love worshiping with you guys. Welcome to Crossroads. If you are new, my name is Ryan. I am not one of the pastors here. I am just a guy that's been worshiping here for about, oh, I don't know, a dozen years or so. Uh, this is my service, the 11 o'clock. These are my peeps. So my, I've got uh, my wife and four beautiful children. This is usually the service that we come to. We like to call it the 1115 service. Yeah, amen, right? Yeah, we, we fully embrace Sabbath on Sundays. <sighs> Tell you a little bit about myself. I'm the executive director of a, a ministry here in the West Side called the Bridge Street House of Prayer. Been doing this for 13 years. Uh, also, um, why do I share that? Because the West Side has been home for 13 years. So I live a lot of great stuff happening in the West Side right now. A lot of really exciting stuff. Uh, there's also a lot of people still living in the grips of poverty and, and um, yeah, just uh, living under a lot of pressure and pain right now. And so we live in an area of the West Side that is. If you go to the cool part of the west side, and then you go past that into the not cool part of the west side, and then you go like another quarter of a mile, that's where we live. So that's been a home for us for 13 years, and it has been uh, an absolute joy to live among some of the poorest, most uh, vulnerable and marginalized people in our city. Do this with a group of people. My wife and I are raising our kids in the midst of this neighborhood, and we get the joy every day of uh, living and serving in this neighborhood and living with a group of people that are, man, we're just trying our best to figure out how in the midst of a neighborhood like ours, uh, how do we, man, how do we be followers of Jesus? What does it mean to be followers of Jesus in the midst of uh, what is uh, a pretty broken neighborhood? And what does it look like for the kingdom of heaven in a neighborhood like ours, and uh, we do not do this perfectly, but man, that's our heart. Why do I share this? I share this because uh, for 13 years I've, I've lived among some of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our, in, our, in our city, and man, that shapes you, and it shaped me for 13 years. It's really shaped who I am. It's shaped how I think about this world. It's shaped how I read my Bible. It's shaped what I believe about God and what I think about God. It's, uh, man, it's given me an even deeper love for God. It's given me just a deep, deep love for God. It has um, given me an even greater hope for the church. I believe now more than ever that the church is the hope of the nations. The Holy Spirit through the church, I think that is God's plan. It's God's plan A for his kingdom here on earth, and I don't think he has a plan B. And I'm more and more convinced of that. And uh, so we're just trying to figure that, that out here in the West Side. And I, I have seen, as I have studied scriptures now, I've been a student of God's word for about 20 years. And uh, living in the neighborhood that we live in, I just have seen what I call this inseparable link between the poor and the gospel. And I just see that, um, once you see that connection, it just reappears over and over and over in scripture. And so I share that because this, it colors who I am. It colors how I read my Bible. It colors how I preach, and that'll come out today. So 
If you, are, uh, if you were here last week, you know that we started a new series here at Crossroads, starting a series on numbers. So it's always fun to preach here at Crossroads. I've had the opportunity to preach here a number of times, and it's not like other places that I get to preach. I get to preach at a, a number of different places, and often when I'm invited to preach, it's usually to speak on discipleship or mission, and there's, you know, there's go-to verses and scriptures that I go to, and or, or maybe there's a topic or a theme that people will give me. You know, give me verses like Philippians 4.13 or John 3.16. Or, no, not here at Crossroads. Not here at Crossroads. We preach numbers. <laughs> we preach numbers here at Crossroads. So Rod asked me to preach. I said, great, I'd love to preach. What are we preaching? He says, numbers. I said, wow, that's awesome. What part of numbers? He said, yeah, I want you to preach numbers 4 through 7. Such gripping accounts as, let's see here, the Kohathites, the Gershonites, the Merarites. Yeah, I mean, you guys know all, you know your Bibles, you know all this stuff. If you have not read the book of Numbers, uh, there is this account in Numbers chapter 5. It is one of the weirdest things in the Bible. If anybody read the test for the unfaithful woman, it is like, yeah, I see a couple of people smile. I was going to do some fun stuff with this this morning, but I don't have time. It is seriously one of the weirdest things in Scripture. It is like, go home and read this around your dinner table, but not if you have little kids because it's really weird. And uh, it's like literally, it's, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Jerry Springer in Scripture. It's, it's the weirdest thing. Numbers 5, read it. It's the, honestly just the craziest thing. I can't believe that's in our Bibles. But we're not going to preach that this morning as much as I would love to. We're going to look at number 6, the Nazarite vow. And we're going to connect this to the theme verse that Rod has been talking about for the last few weeks. And you remember what the theme verse for this year is? URA. That's the beginning of it. Yes, 1 Peter 2, 9. Who knows it? You are a what? A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people belonging to God that you might declare the glories or the praises of our God who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'm going to do my best this morning to connect number six to this verse and to the gospel, and I, if I do it right this morning, I think you'll see some pretty clear connections. So if you've been with us before, you know we like to stand for the reading of God's word, so if you would, stand with me, turn in your Bibles to Numbers 6. I believe if you, are, if you have a blue Bible, it's on page 109, is that correct? If you don't, it's like right here, so look right about there in your Bibles, that's where it's going to be. Numbers chapter 6 says this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and any, and any other fermented drink. He must not drink vinegar made from wine or any other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. 
As long as he is a Nazarite, he must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long throughout the period of separation to the Lord. He must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. And then he goes on to say some things about what happens if you accidentally come in contact with a dead body. Jump with me to verse 13. It says, Now this is the law for the Nazarite when the period of his separation is over. He is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. There he is to present his offerings to the Lord. A year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and a basket made without yeast, a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes made of fine flour mixed with oil and wafers spread with oil. So essentially it says, bring all the sacrifices, all the sacrifices you've heard about, do them all. Verse 16, the, pres- the priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord together with its grain offerings and its drink offering. Then at the, tentance, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it in the fire that is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. Verse 19, after the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place his hands on a boiled shoulder of ram and a cake and a wafer from the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. After that, the Nazarite may again drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, whose vows, who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance with his separation. In addition to whatever else he can afford, he must fulfill the vow he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. Go ahead and have a seat. So what in the world do we do with this passage? Why is this passage here? And what does it have to do with Israel? And more importantly, what does it have to do with us today? And I would submit to you this morning that this, what seems to be a relatively obscure passage in a relatively unknown book of the Bible, I would submit is inherently missional to the nation of Israel. I would, I would submit that it has direct connections to the gospel and significant application to us as a people of God today. Now, to back that up and to support that, we need to do a little bit of hard work. Are you okay with doing a little bit of hard work this morning? we got to do a little bit of hard work to understand where this fits in the overall story, the overall narrative of Israel. But even more than that, I think we actually have to understand how this fits into the overall narrative of Scripture, 
And to do that, we need to start all the way back at the beginning, all the way back in Genesis. And in Genesis 1, we learn a couple of things at the very beginning that are really important to understand the character of God and his intention for mankind in this world. In, this world. in Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then in verse 3 it's, is where it says, God, then God said, let there be light. And then God starts from here to bring forth the light. And then he starts to separate the waters and bring forth land. And then he brings forth the vegetation and the fruit from the land and the animals. And, and creation goes on from here. But one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that when you get to Genesis chapter 3, God is no longer creating out of nothing. Instead, in Genesis 1, God from nothing creates everything. But then in Genesis 1 verse 2, what we see is that original creation that God made in Genesis 1, the description that we have is that it was formless and empty. It was dark and it was chaotic. That word waters there implies that it was a chaotic environment. But in the midst of that, it says the Spirit of God is present. In the midst of the chaos, in the midst of this emptiness, in the midst of this formless, this formless uh, creation, the Spirit of God is present. And here, I think, at the very beginning in Genesis 1, we learn something that I think is one of the most important attributes of God that we see that is repeated all throughout Scripture, is that He is a God that is present in the midst of chaos. And more importantly, he is a God that is going to step into chaos and bring forth beauty and light and shalom and purpose. I think that is the overall message of Genesis 1, is a God who steps into chaos to bring forth beauty and order and shalom. Now fast forward a couple of verses and you come to Genesis 1, verse 27. At the pinnacle of creation and the sixth day of creation, after God has brought forth the order and the beauty that he intended in the earth, it says that God created man. And he created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here, at the pinnacle of creation, God creates mankind, male and female, and he gives them their identity. He says, your identity is to be my image bearers on the earth. But he also gives them their purpose, their task. Right after that, God says, he blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So here at the pinnacle of creation, God creates man, he gives them their identity. He says, you are to be my image bearers. And in being my image bearer, what you are to do is to do what I have been doing. To bring forth the shalom that I intended for that. What God is doing here is he is inviting man to participate with him in bringing forth the beauty and the order that he intends on earth. 
And what, what God is doing here is this, he's using priestly language. The, the image here and the, the language that is being used here is priestly and kingly type of language. He's creating Adam and Eve to be priests and kings. A priest is just that, is somebody who represents God. A priest is one that's meant to be among the people to represent God. And this is what God is doing with Adam and Eve. He's creating them, he's making them to be priests and kings in creation. To partner with him in bringing forth the shalom that he intended in creation. Hold on to that phrase there, be fruitful, or, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Because we're going to see that again in a minute. But if you fast forward just a couple of chapters, you come to Genesis chapter 3, and you, you, uh, you know the story. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve find themselves faced with the temptation that the enemy gives them. And what we find is that rather than being priests and kings, they forget their identity. And they forsake their purpose in this world. And what they do is they rebel against God which brings a curse on the earth. And so rather than being priests and kings to bring about the shalom of this earth, they rebel against God, which actually brings the destruction, that that brings death and chaos. So rather than bringing forth the shalom, the result of the rebellion is chaos on this earth. And yet in the midst of this, we see another very important attribute of God. In Genesis 3.15 After Adam and Eve rebel and they're ashamed and God meets them, God says to them, this is all screwed up. All of this is screwed up now, but I still have a plan. I still have a purpose for you. In fact, from you, Eve, there's going to come this seed, God says. This seed is going to come forth from you and fulfill my purposes. There's a seed that's going to come and he's going to suffer. The enemy is going to strike his heel. He's going to suffer in the process, but he's going to be victorious. And he is going to do the thing that I intended for you to do. He is going to, he's going to overcome the chaos of this world and bring forth the shalom that I have intended. This has always been God's purpose for mankind from the very beginning, was to go out into the world and bring forth the shalom of this world. Fast forward a couple of chapters and you come to Genesis chapter 12. After chaos has covered the earth, mankind has spiraled out of control. This infection of sin is everywhere. And God calls out a seed from Eve. And his name is Abram when we meet him in Genesis 12. He becomes Abraham. But when we meet Abram in Genesis 12, we meet a man who is living in the midst of a pagan world. We meet a man who is living in the midst of pagan nations. And out of that chaos, out of that wickedness, out of that evil, out of that rebellion, God calls Abram. And it says, Abram, I'm going to continue my promise through you. And he says, I'm going to make a a promise to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Even though you have no children right now, You're beyond the age of childbearing, you and your wife. I'm going to make you into a great nation. But Abram, what you need to understand is I'm going to make you into a great nation, not for an end unto itself, but God says, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And this becomes the identifying mark 
of Israel in the Bible. This is their identity and this is their purpose. God's chosen people called out to be blessed so that they can be a blessing to the world. This is God's intention for Israel. What's interesting is you go through the book of Genesis and you find that God is faithful as he always is, as we sang this morning, that God is always faithful to fulfill his word. God blesses Abraham. He has children, they have children, and they have children. Becomes the nation of Israel. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, Abraham's family has started. The nation of Israel has been born. When you get to Exodus... Just after Genesis, you come to a very interesting verse in Exodus 1, verse 6. It says, Now Joseph, who was from the line of Abraham, Joseph and all of his brothers, and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. They were fruitful and they multiplied and they covered the earth. Isn't that interesting? Haven't we heard that before? Where did we hear that before? Genesis 1.28. God is fulfilling his purpose for mankind through Israel. They are numerous. They've been fruitful. They have multiplied. They're covering the earth. And yet there's a problem here when we get to the book of Exodus. And the problem is, even though they are multiplying and covering the earth, they're not ruling, they're not subduing, they're not in their land, they're not doing the thing that God intended. As a matter of fact, you get to Exodus, and they're in the land of Egypt, and they find themselves as slaves. Rather than going out and ruling in the land, they become the ruled. And so God has to rescue them from Egypt in order to fulfill his purposes, And so you know the story, God rescues them out of Egypt, they cross over into the desert, and they come to Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. Mount Sinai is a very important uh, piece in Israel's history. Israel comes out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they spend two months journeying to the desert, they come to Mount Sinai, and they spend two years at Mount Sinai. Two years in the desert. And the first thing that God says to Israel at Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although although, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Isn't that interesting? Where have we heard that before? First Peter. See, this was God's intention for Israel, which connects to God's intention for Abraham, which connects to God's intention for man, that we would go out and be priests. And God says to Israel at Mount Sinai, you are to be a kingdom of priests. You weren't meant to be ruled over. You're meant to go out and to be a blessing to the nations. So they come to Mount Sinai. They spend two years at Mount Sinai. 
the whole rest of the book of Exodus after Exodus 19, all the way through Leviticus, into the beginning of Numbers, all happens at Mount Sinai for two years. And it's in this desert that God starts to give them some instructions. He renews their identity and their purpose. And it's in the midst of this that God gives them the instructions for the tabernacle, which is where his presence dwells. And now this becomes an identifying mark for Israel, a people whose, who, whose God dwells in their midst wherever they go. That's the rest of Exodus. And then you get into Leviticus, and God starts to give them instructions for holy living or godly living or priestly living. Here's how you're supposed to live as priests. And then in the midst of this, God gives them instructions for the Levites. The Levites are this specific tribe in the nation of Israel. This tribe is responsible for the care of the tabernacle and the temple. They're responsible for all of the logistics and the maintenance. And then there's one family line from Aaron called the priests. And these are the ones that are responsible for the sacrifice. So this is all of Leviticus setting up these rituals and these rites and establishing this Levitical line and the priests. Then we come to Numbers. You come to Numbers. Why do, I, why, do I, why do I share all of this? Why do I spend time? Well, because you told me you wanted to do some hard work, so we're doing some hard work. I think it's also important to know how our Bibles work. I think it's important to understand how this book works, that when you open this thing, it's a story. Now, wherever you open it, you're part of a story that's been going on from the beginning of time. And so it's important to understand when you open your Bibles how this thing works. I think it's also important to make sense out of where we are today in Numbers chapter 6. See, because when we get to Numbers chapter 6 and this Nazarite vow, one of the things that's important to remember is this is given at Mount Sinai at the very end of the two years that they spend there before they're about to leave the desert and go into the promised land. Now I say that and you say, well, didn't they wander for 40 years? Yes, that came later. That wasn't supposed to happen. From Mount Sinai, Israel was supposed to take a short walk across the desert. If you've ever been with Rod out in the desert, you know that's a funny statement. But they're supposed to take this short journey across the desert into the promised land. This is one of the final instructions that God gives to Israel before they are about to leave the desert and go into the promised land. See, friends, the desert is always temporary. God, or Rod did a, a, great, uh, a great treatment last week on the desert and the importance and the value of the desert and what God does in the desert, stripping us of our, of our, of our reliances and our idols and, and reminding us of our identity. But it's also important to remember that the desert is always temporary. The desert's always temporary. I can remember a desert season in my own life about 15 years ago, one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through, just incredibly painful. And I had a friend that was just full of wisdom called me up and just said, Ryan, in this time, suffer well. Suffer well. Because there's glory at the end of it. And if you try to escape the pain, you're going to miss the glory. See, friends, the, the, the desert is always temporary. And then God's got purposes at the end of it. The, the desert for Israel is meant to be temporary before they go into the promised land. And this Nazarite vow is one of the last things, one of the, the final instructions that God gives Israel before they're about to leave Mount Sinai 
where he reminds them of their identity and their purpose to go out into the nations. And now they're about to go out into the nations to be priests, to be a holy nation. So with that in mind, I come back to Numbers chapter 6. And as I look at Numbers chapter 6, I, I like to just make some observations. I do a lot of Bible study with young people, and one of the things I like to do is just make observations. Let's just see what's here, what's happening here. And as I look at this, this text in, in number six, there's a couple of things that I find very, very compelling here. When you're looking at the Levitical law, what you find is there's a lot of required things that God has. There's these required festivals, there's these required feasts, there's these required sacrifices, there's, all, there's, there's a number of required elements that God has for the people of Israel. What I also find interesting is that the sacrifice is reserved for a specific, the, 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 the ritual, the actual offering of sacrifices was reserved just for the priests. They're the only ones that can offer the sacrifices. But then when you come to the Nazarite vow, one of the things that I recognize is there's no requirement here. This is a completely voluntary vow. And not only is it a voluntary vow, it's something that is open to everyone. It's a completely voluntary vow that anybody can, can take, any man or any woman from any tribe. God says if anybody, any man, any woman desires to take this vow, you can do it and here's how you do it. So it's a completely voluntary thing. But the other thing that I find very intriguing is that although it's voluntary, there is no promise of blessing or reward connected to it. Isn't that interesting? In Scripture, you see, especially in the, in the Levitical laws that God establishes, you see uh, these corresponding blessings and these corresponding consequences. If you obey me, this will happen. If you disobey me, this will happen. And you see these, uh, these corresponding blessings and woes until you get to this Nazarite vow. And there is, no there is no promise of blessing. There's no hope for reward. It's just a completely voluntary... In fact... It's so, like, so clear is God on this that it ends with a sacrifice. As if to say, not only does this not earn you anything, but just so you th remember that you're not earning anything, I want you to offer a sacrifice to remember that you're still a sinner, that you're still in need of a sacrifice, that you weren't any better after this vow than you were before this vow. So I find that very, very interesting. And I think about these three elements that are involved in this vow that God says to abstain from wine. Why would God say that? I think, I think in our culture there's um, a certain, well I think there, there's at least the, 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 the tendency to interpret something like this as if God is warning against the dangers of drunkenness, the dangers of alcohol. I don't think that's what's happening here because in scripture Wine is almost always connected to celebration and joy. The vine is connected to blessing. So when Israel goes to Canaan, when they send the spies to spy out Canaan, what do they come back with? They come back with this massive amount of grapes as if to show, look at how blessed this land is. Wine in scripture is almost always connected to joy and celebration and blessing. And then you think about this, uh, this, this avoidance of any 
dead bodies, what you see in scripture is that death is the ultimate expression or result of sin. It is where wickedness and evil leads us to. And then there's this, this hair piece. What is this hair thing all about? I, um, just this last week, when I, as I was studying and preparing for this, a, a friend of ours, uh, he's an African missionary from uh, Cameroon. And he's from this area of Africa where everybody, all the men have the same haircut. It's just short, just short haircut. And he felt led a couple of years ago to take a Nazarite vow. And he felt like part of that to, to actually follow the vow that God has here. And so he has not cut his hair in two years. So you meet him now and his hair is just like snaggly, crazy. It's all, looks like a bunch of like snakes coming out of his head. And uh, he said he went back to his uh, home in Cameroon recently and he was going to meet with some local African leaders, church leaders from around Africa, some really key influential pastors. And the host, when he saw a picture, I was on Facebook or something, saw our friend Jackson, he called him up right before he was about to leave and he said, Jackson, you have got to cut your hair before you come here. You cannot come here with your hair look like that. That is shameful and you'll undermine your witness here. You've got to cut your hair before you come here. And he said to me, he said, that did a couple of things for me. He said, number one, it really made me analyze and reflect on the fear of man that I carry around with me. This fear that I have of people being offended by me. He said, but another thing happened. What it did is it opened up opportunities to testify to these African pastors about here's why my hair is like this. I want to tell you about the faithfulness of God in my life. I want to tell you what God is speaking to me and what God is doing with me. It became for him a living testimony, a visible reminder to his peers about what God is doing. So I think about these and I put these together and I think about this in the context of Israel who is about to leave the desert and go into the promised land where there will be Milk and, milk and honey flowing and there'll be abundance and they'll be able to settle down and live in a safe and secure setting and they'll be out amongst, amongst wicked nations. I wonder if what's happening here is God saying, remember. Remember Israel. When you leave this desert place and you go out into the promised land and you come out into an o- wide open space, remember who you are. Remember what God has called you to. Remember, don't get too comfortable with the abundance of wine that is going to be available. Don't get too comfortable. Maybe it's a reminder, abstain from that once in a while so that you can remember what God has done. And then don't get involved in the wickedness of the nations around you. Rather go in and be a light in the midst of that darkness. And I just think, what would it have been like if you're walking through your village and you see a neighbor walking down the street and his hair is long and unkempt, unusually long, and you you see that and you remember, oh, that's the Nazarite vow, and it reminds you, remember. Remember who you are and what God has called you to. Don't get mixed up in the nations around you. Rather, be a priest to the nations around you so that through the blessing of God on you, they can be blessed and experience the kingdom of heaven. You follow the the journey of Israel and you find that they 
quickly forget and they quickly forsake. And they quickly get involved in the wickedness of the nations around them. Rather than going in and priesting, they go in and they start to assimilate with the nations around them. And they forget their identity and their purpose. And then, uh, as a matter of fact, the only instances that I can find in Scripture of individuals who have taken a Nazarite vow are people like Samson or Samuel, potentially John the Baptist, Paul. Now think about these men who God used instead of going out and priesting to the nations and remembering, instead of this being simply a reminder, now it becomes a call to repentance, to come back, to return from your wickedness. And you find that Israel quickly falls short and spirals out to such a degree that very quickly they are dispersed among the nations the very nations that they were meant to be priests among. Fast forward to Jesus' life. We have no account or reason to believe that Jesus took a Nazarite vow. But I look at Jesus' life and I look at the elements of this Nazarite vow and it's almost as if Jesus is the ultimate expression of this Nazarite vow. One who came and and, and abstained from some legitimate pleasures. We have no reason to believe that Jesus abstained from wine, but there's passages like Philippians where it says Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not count his divinity as something to be used for his own advantage. He did not use that privilege for his own account. Rather, he took the form of a slave so that the nations could be blessed. I think about Jesus. It says that he was a man that lived a sinful life. Obviously, he did not avoid dead bodies, but what's interesting is when Jesus comes across a dead body, that dead body doesn't stay dead very long. And Jesus lives a sinful life, avoiding the wickedness of the nations and the people around him. And then at the end of Jesus' life, at the end of Maybe his vow. Jesus also offers a sacrifice. He offers the ultimate sacrifice. But not a sacrifice for his sin. He offers a sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. As if this is the ultimate expression of what God intended. There are many, many uh, scholars who I think will rightly interpret Jesus' life as the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be. The fulfillment of Israel's calling, which is God's ultimate calling for mankind to, be, to go out into the midst of a chaotic world, to be priests, to represent God so that the nations can see what our God is like. But the story doesn't end with Jesus. That is the pinnacle of human history. However, Jesus, after his death and resurrection, we come to a place like Acts 1 verse 8, and Jesus says to his disciples, he says, guys, I have completed my work, I have fulfilled this calling, and yet the work continues, and it's going to continue through you. Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1 8, he says, I'm going to send my spirit after me, after me is going to come another, my Holy Spirit's going to come, and it's going to fill you, and he's going to empower you. And he's going to empower you to be my witnesses, my priests 
among the nations. Isn't that what Jesus says there? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You are going to fulfill what God intended from the very beginning, to be priests among the nations. And then this, friends, becomes the mark of the church throughout human history. Is the people of God, just as Israel went out carrying the presence of God with them, God dwelling in their midst, now the church goes out into the nations with the Spirit of God, the very presence of God dwelling in us, going out into the nations to be priests among the nations, going out into the difficult and dark places, not avoiding the darkness, but stepping into the darkness to bring forth light and shalom. This, friends, I think is God's purpose and intention for the church since its birth 2,000 years ago. As I look at the church today, the church that you and I know, it begs me to ask a couple of questions. How are we doing with this? How are we doing with being priests? How are we doing with this calling to step into dark and difficult areas and bring forth light and joy? And I, and I, I look around and I, I, I love the church. I absolutely love the church. But there's also some th- things about the church that are concerning to me when I think about the calling and the purpose, the identity and the purpose of the church. I seem to see some people today that are in the world. Scripture tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world and in the midst of the world. To bring forth light. And I see people stepping into the world, but assimilating with the world. I see people stepping into the darkness and taking on the pagan practices of the world around us. Still bearing the name of Jesus. Coming to church on a Sunday morning. But do our lives look any different on Monday afternoon. People that will come and fill a church pew on Sunday morning, but is there any distinction in the office on Tuesday afternoon? I, see, I think I see some Christians that want to take on the pleasures of this world, get our ticket stamped to heaven, and then live like this world. And I'm going to tell you, friends, this world does not need more powerless clones of itself. I also see, on the other side of that, some people that have seen the darkness, have seen the chaos, and rather than stepping into that, have removed themselves from it and step out of difficult situations. And I see... I see in, 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 in some people this insatiable thirst and hunger for comfort and safety. This insatiable thirst for privilege. And I want to tell you, friends, this insatiable thirst that people have for comfort and safety is so damaging to the witness of Jesus Christ. Because when we have this insatiable thirst and we think that God's blessing on our lives is an end unto itself, then when there are people or things or circumstances that start to threaten that, what we do is we move out of that. 
And we do that long enough, and we hold on to this tight enough, and we start to label entire peoples who threaten our way of life, who threaten our comfort. And we think that the blessing of God is an end unto itself for my own enjoyment and my privilege and my comfort. And then when people start to threaten that, we label them and demonize them rather than stepping into the pain of the people around us and bringing forth hope and joy and celebration. I'll tell you a way this plays out in this city. Just across that highway is a neighborhood that is one of the poorest, most marginalized neighborhoods in the city. Now, I say this with great love for the West Side. I absolutely love the West Side, and there are so many beautiful people, and I am so privileged and, uh, and honored to call, call them my neighbors. But here's been the trend of the West Side for 50 years. See, the West Side... And there's pockets and there's different stories, but the overall trend of the West Side has been 50 years of decline. See, 50 years ago, the West Side was a pretty stable neighborhood. A pretty stable neighborhood and a, and a pretty um, religious, at least. There's a very strong church presence in the West Side. But then about 50 years ago, for a variety of reasons, things started to change and started to decline and, and, and now we've, for 50 years, suffered the economic and spiritual decline in the West Side. And what has happened over those 50 years is that Christians, when things started to get difficult, rather than stepping into that and pressing into that, the church has left the West Side. And now we are left in the West Side as the most unchurched area of this city. We live in an area of the west side where there are not churches in every street corner. And there are not Christians in every home. We live in an area where we do a lot of work with Westwood Middle School. It's the local public school. It is the neighborhood school for the west side. And we are finding more and more and more students that have never heard the gospel in the west side. They've never heard the gospel. We're hearing more and more students. I was just uh, talking to... Uh, 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 a, a gentleman after church, he, uh, after the first service, working at, work, mentoring a student at, at Stocking, he said the same thing. Asked this student, what do you know about this Jesus? And the student said, who's Jesus? The inner cities of America are the f- next frontier for the gospel. And it's unfortunate that that's a reality because what has happened in places like the inner cities of America is that when things have gotten difficult, Christians largely have left. And we've, and we've bought into this idea that God's greatest desire is my comfort and my safety. And I want to say, friends, that is such a dangerous theology. And it is not the identity and it is not the purpose of the church. The identity and the purpose of the church throughout history, is to go into dark and difficult places, to move in like Jesus did. It says that Jesus, he moved in, he put on flesh, and he became familiar with our sorrows and our sufferings. And in the midst of that, he brought forth redemption. I want to say, friends, this is the calling of the church, and this is the hope of the nations. Just wrap up with a couple of thoughts. Maybe you're here this morning and 
Maybe you've bought into this, uh, this theology of comfort. That God's greatest desire is that you would be rich, wealthy, comfortable, and safe. I just want to say, friends, you can't find it here. It, it, I don't know how else to say it other than it is a great deception that is undermining the witness of the church. And in doing so, we are telling this world what we think our God is like. By removing ourselves from difficult situations, we are telling this world, we have a witness in that, and we're telling this world what we think our God is like. Rather than a God who steps into chaos to bring forth Shalom. When you buy into this philosophy and this insatiable thirst for comfort and safety, you undermine the very witness of Christ. And I want to say it is a very, very dangerous theology. Friends, if you're in that place this morning, and I don't want to assume that you are, but I also don't want to assume that there's people here that are not. And if you are in that I just want to caution you, that is a very dangerous, dangerous road to be on. It is a very dangerous road to be on. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have come through a desert. Maybe you have found yourself in a wide open place. You didn't ask for it, you didn't try for it, but you have found that God has given you a season where you're in a wide open space. If that's you this morning, there's a couple of things I... I want to encourage you with, number one, I want to bless God with you for that. I want to bless God for being one who is faithful to bring us through the desert. So if you find yourself in that space, in a wide open space, bless God for that. I also want to encourage you to remember. I want to encourage you, don't get too comfortable in that space. Don't get too comfortable in that wide open space. Maybe if you're in that space, you need to get some rhythms in your life, like this Nazarite vow. Maybe you need to get some rhythms that regularly remind you that this blessing that God has given me is not an end unto itself. But God has blessed me so that I can bless those around me. God has blessed me so that I can go into the chaos around me, wherever that chaos happens to be that I can go into that and bring forth beauty and shalom. If that's you, maybe you need to get some rhythms. Again, maybe it's not a Nazarite vow. Maybe it is a Nazarite vow. Maybe you need to take a year from drinking those fine wines and give that to my wife and I. (laughs) Winking owl, man, that's all we got. Wink. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Aldi 250, baby. This is just a joke. It's just a joke. But I just want to encourage you, man, don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. Remember your identity and remember your purpose. And maybe you're here this morning. And I'm, I know there's a number of you here like this because one of the things this week we were talking as we were preparing for this, I was meeting with the staff, and one of the things that came up, Max was just, uh, if, if you know Max, he's the youth pastor here, most important position in a church, right, youth pastors, he was just bragging on a lot of you, just talking about how there's people in this church, many people who are living this, who are living out this calling to be priests among the nations and doing it in really 
quiet and subversive ways, but going into the difficult situations around you, forsaking some of the legitimate pleasures and opportunities that you have. And I know there's many in this church that are doing that. And I want to just say to you that you're not alone and that it is costly and it is difficult. But you're not alone. And I want to just say this is your identity and your calling. That you are the bright and shining lamps that this world needs to see. Again, this world does not need more weak, powerless clones of itself that wears a label of Christian. What this world needs is those of you that are going into the difficult areas and letting your light shine brightly. We need you to continue to do that. That's why the work that that Crossroads is, is doing at Stocking is so valuable. What some of you are doing is stepping into these difficult areas. And I know that it's difficult, and I know there's times that you wonder, is it worth it? Is this what I'm called to? And I want to just say, friends, don't give up. Don't give up. I'll I'll finish with a story. Uh, Last week, my wife and I were with some friends of ours that used to go to this church. He was a medical student uh, at MSU, did really well in med school, got some opportunities to go to some pretty prestigious residencies. He chose to go to South Bend, into the inner city of South Bend, and work at a family clinic serving some of the most under-resourced families of South Bend. And then we met him, and uh, he just applied for some jobs, and he was giddy, literally giddy, excited to tell me about this job that he landed. He said, I've, he said, I've landed my dream job. I said, oh, really, what's that? So my wife and I are moving to Lawndale, Chicago, to live in one of the most violent, under-resourced neighborhoods in America. And we're going to, and I'm going to work at a medical clinic there, serving some of the most under-resourced in our whole country. Somebody who has looking at, has taken a look at what this world has to offer and said there's a better way. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of the Nazarite. It's the calling to be a priest in this world. Crossroads, this is our calling. This is your calling. To be priests, to be Nazarites, to be the bright and shining lamps in the dark and difficult places of this world. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for your spirit that empowers us to fulfill this calling, that empowers us to fulfill the calling to go out into the difficult places of this world, that empowers us to have strength to let our light shine brightly. And I pray, God, this morning that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would continue to empower us so that we could go out and declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen and amen.